I brought two things with me. I brought wax and a wick on this side. Wax and a wick. Can you see that over there? Wax and a wick. This is called a candle. And I'll put that right there. And I brought wood. I brought wood. And this is called a log. So I brought a log. And this will be very key for the rest of our time. Very key. Believe it or not, you are one of these. I'll show you what I mean. So with the candle, we light it. And if you're at the Christmas Eve service, we lit some candles and they burnt the rug. Kind of happy for that. That means we can get some new rug color. I'm kidding. And I asked Arnie Winnell, but he wouldn't have let me, but I was going to bring some gasoline and more wood, and I was going to light this. But he won't let me do that. Kind of upset. So imagine right here a big fire. It's crackling, and it's just blazing. And this is dry wood, so it will really take once that gasoline soaks in. So this uh, is you, or this is you? So how do you determine which one is you? Well, one of these is fragile, and one of these is infragile. So by fragile, I mean it's, it's kind of um, weak, needs protection, and uh, you need to kind of be, be careful with it because if any little wind should come, it's blown out. But now with this, you don't need to protect that. Actually, when wind comes, it gets bigger, stronger. And better. You're either wax and a wick or wood. What is the wind? Wind is anything that could be problems for you in your life. It could be a bad circumstance, bad health, bad news, bad thoughts. If you're fragile, it can cripple you. If you're infragile, it's actually a new opportunity. And I'm here to tell you, if if you can remember one thing all morning, and hopefully this will really translate for the new year, and maybe even a new decade, you are not fragile. You are not fragile. This message is to hopefully fortify you in the new decades to come, because some of us, and I'm saying this more for me than anybody, some of us so easily crumble when we turn on the news or when we hear some bad news, we crumble because we're fragile. But in our passage today, we're going to see that God has, God has given us something and he's made us to be something, and that's not fragile. So if you can stand one more time, we're going to read our very last message in Thessalonians. Hopefully you like, Joe, did you like this journal? Did it help a little bit? Oh, you're reading your Bible. You're a Bible. That's good. Any, do you like the journals? All right. Thank you. Thompson family, love the journals. So let's read the last one. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to pick up from 4 where we left off. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Now, 
We command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this will get kind of personal, actually, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and is not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how we ought to imitate, how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Idle means lazy, sitting around, busybody. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way, the Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Everybody said? You may, you may have a seat. That was our last reading from that book. Now, before I go into the reading, I kind of want to address this again. I want to address this idea of fragility and infragile. And some of you aren't sure which one you are. And I'll give you a really easy way to determine if you are fragile, if you are somebody that cowers. And it's the way, it all begins with the way you think. And more and more, there is a cult, we live in a culture of fragility. I, I read this book a couple years ago, and I often don't promote books up here, but I want to promote this book. I'm going to use it a little bit today, but it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. Get this book. Seriously, get this book. Its intent is to strengthen you. But it talks a lot about fragility. And one of the things it says is a fragile person thinks a certain way, and I'm going to call it the curse, the curse of catastrophic thinking. You know, the idea of catastrophic thinking is when all of a sudden bad things happen. It's kind of like this green smoke that covers my eyes to life, and I'm, I'm, all I can think are dark thoughts, thoughts that are catastrophic. It gives an illustration in here of what catastrophic thinking sounds like. And see if you think like this. Here's, it's called catastrophizing. If I fail this quiz, I'll fail the class. And if I fail the class, I'll be kicked out of school. And if I'm kicked out of school, I'll never get a job. And if I never get a job, I'm going to be homeless on the street. And if I'm going to be homeless on the street, I'm going to become a heroin addict. And if I become a heroin addict, I'm going to die in a gutter. It's catastrophic thinking, all because you failed one quiz. Some of you are like this. You know, this person said I was at work, said I was lazy, and since they said I'm lazy, that means I'm no good, and nobody thinks I'm good, and since nobody thinks I'm good, what's the use of talking to anybody? So I'm just going to hide underneath my covers, because I'm no good. 
In fact, this is the beginning of what it's called basically the triad of depressed thinking. Some psychologists were looking at depressive persons, and normally they said they have three things they think of. It's called the triad of depressive thinking. The first one is this, I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm worthless for people. I, I don't have really any value. I look around, everybody else has a great job. Look at me. I, I've got nothing. Then it starts spiraling. And the second thing is literally when I look around, life is miserable. So you could say my world is bleak. Not only am I no good, but this world's against me. Everybody's against Nobody likes me. Everything is kind of, it's twisted to where I will fail. I felt a little bit of this last night at the Ohio State game, and I'm an Ohio State fan. Those refs were against my team. They really were. Did you see that one call? But, you know, and then we stew the rest of our lives. Everybody's against me. And then it really goes to the bottom of the depressing barrel, which is this, my future is hopeless. So when I look down the corridor of life, all I see is a dark hallway with no exit. That's fragile thinking. It's interesting this book talks about some other ways that you can tell you have fragile thinking. Emotional reasoning, letting your feelings guide your interpretation. I feel depressed, therefore my marriage is not working out. Because you feel something, therefore everything else stinks. Overgeneralizing. Perceiving a global pattern of negatives. With, this generally happens to me. I seem to fail at a lot of things. And since I generally fail, why try anything? One of the big ones, this is interesting, is people with this kind of thinking get into what's called mind reading. Assuming that you know what people think without having sufficient evidence of their thoughts. Oh, that person over there, they think I'm a loser. I can see it. <laughs> it's catastrophic thinking. And so I, I'm here to say, if, if my argument is, no, you're not fragile, you are infragile, I need to be able to support my argument. And so I believe I'm going to make two arguments found from this passage. In Thessalonians, if you remember, Paul is writing to a church he loved. He went to Macedonia, planted this church in a Gentile world. It was surrounded by people that didn't like him. They even wanted to throw Paul in jail. So he took off, he went to Athens, and then went down to Corinth because they were chasing him. They wanted to kill him. And so he left this new little tiny baby church. He's only there probably six months, all to themselves. And so this is his last letter that they're ever going to read from the strong Apostle Paul. In my mind, if I was Paul, I'm like, they're not going to make it. Everybody hates him. And if I was in that church, I'm like, oh, Paul's gone. What do we do? We, we're like this all the time. 2020's coming. Oh. <laughs> what do we do? My car. My car got a flat tire. <laughs> we get like that. Like in, anything can like get us into mass, massive catastrophic thinking. And so in this are two strong rocks of thinking you need to start setting up in your life. And the first one is this, and it's found in verse 3. Listen closely. So Paul is writing to this church he's never going to see again. 
They're never going to hear from him again. And here's what he writes, very end of his message. The Lord is faithful. He will establish you. That's verse 3. And then verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. What he's saying is we have confidence not in your ability or who you are or circumstances. Our confidence that you're going to make it is in the Lord. Confidence, strength is in the Lord. That's where it comes from. In fact, if you look at verse 5, he says this. This is powerful. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. He loves you. And to the steadfastness of Christ. That means the Spirit of God is in you and He's going to He's going to make you strong and steadfast. Philippians says, He who begins a good work in you, He'll be faithful to bring it to the day of completion. Why? How do I know that? Because He loves me. We can say it's a hundred million times. That's the whole purpose of the cross. That's the whole purpose of the dying man is to scream in our language, I love you. I gave you my son. And you could say it a hundred times. What more do you want? In fact, that's what I believe the whole book of Psalms is for. The book of Psalms is to convince us that God is always with us. Listen to this psalm. I love this psalm. Psalm 57, verse 2. And you gotta, you got to just kind of take it in. It's a great psalm to memorize, just this verse. And so he's saying, I cry out to God the Most High. Why is the psalmist crying out? Because he's in trouble. He's fragile. I cry out to him. I cry out to God who, and then he jumps on, he, go, he jumps over to fr- infragility. He's going to fulfill his purpose for me. I have confidence in that. So I cry out to him because I know I'm safe in him. When my wife and I were in Russia, I bring it up a lot, but it's a big, it's a big time in my life. We were married only a year. We were living, we lived in Russia for a year, and we were there about six months, and we got to the month of February. The month of February in Russia is dark. It's cold. And I can remember we had about five months left and all I could think about is, man, I don't know what we're going to do once we go home because we, we took all our money just to go to Russia for a year. I don't have a job. I don't know what my job's going to be. And not only that, but my wife found out she was pregnant. She went to a Russian clinic. Imagine your new wife is pregnant and finds it out in Russia where they don't have, you know, neonatal pills. I was, I was like, God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be feeding my wife borscht and, and garlic. Will the baby even make it, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't know what to do. So I'd wake up every morning, and I would read, and I would, my very end of my prayer would be Psalm 90, verse 17. And I would pray it like my life depended on it. May the favor of the Lord rest upon me. Establish the work of my hands, Lord. Establish the work of of my hands, which means, God, you've got to provide for me. You've got to find me a job because I don't know what I'm going to do. We get back, 
and I didn't have a job. We lived in my wife's family, my wife's parents' basement. And we get a call from this little teeny church up in Michigan. And they said, we're around Apple Country. Would you like to intern with us? And the name of that little teeny church is called Kent City Baptist. And I'd say, Kent City Baptist? I've never heard of Kent City. And people normally say, oh, it's, it's right by Sparta. <laughs> oh, of course. Yeah, from Chicago and Cleveland, I know where Sparta is. When you have to say Sparta to get to Kent City, you know Kent City is not necessarily known. And they, they hired me. And I've been here for a long time. And they've been trying to get rid of me for a long time. But, any, but no, I'm just saying, you know, God sustained me. One of my favorite verses, if you want to know a verse that is gorgeous. It's in the NIV. And it, it's Zephaniah 3.17. And I wrote a song to it, but you got to listen to the words, and you got to believe the words. The way the Bible's written, it's God's word to you. They, it's true. So when it's, if something's true, read it as if it's true, not just so it can go on a Harlequin card, you know, a Hallmark card for Grandma. No, it's true. It's to you. Here's what it says. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. And that last part, as a father, made sense to me. Every time Mike, I had a new baby in our house, we would sing and we'd give that baby a song. I can remember putting our baby to bed in the crib, and I'd sing that song to my kids when I put them to bed. And I'm thinking, you mean God wants, he's got a song for me? That means I'm okay. Well, in this passage, a strange, he's, uh, so after he gets past verse 5, he goes to a strange situation in verse 6. In some sense, you could say the situation was they were almost overconfident in their relationship with Christ because what was happening at that time is some of the people in the church became idle. So they... I'll put it like this. They went from confidence to becoming idle. There's a difference between sure God has you and then just God has everything so much in control. My life, who cares? Idleness is, says they were busy and there were some that were busy bodies. What's a busy body? So, I mean, if you know, if you've ever heard of the term busy body, if you've ever watched the old Bewitched and Mrs. Kravitz would look out the window was her name Kravitz? Kravitz would look out the window and go, oh, look what they're doing over there. But it, you probably don't know what that is. So I, went, I got more hip and I looked to the Urban Dictionary on Google. And here's what the Urban Dictionary calls a busybody. It's very fascinating. I don't necessarily recommend the Urban Dictionary, but I'll read it anyhow. I'm on the edge like that, Matt, you know. Here's what it says. The kind of person, a busybody is the kind of person you just want to punch in the mouth for being so annoying. <laughs> they have no life and way too much time on their hands. They frequently use their excessive amount of time to annoy and monitor others, tattletale for small, meaningless stuff, butt into everybody's business except their own and spy on people as if they think they're a cop or an important person or something. You know busybodies when you see them. They eavesdrop. Will report you for child abuse when you discipline your kids in a mall by giving them a small smack on the hand. 
They knock on your apartment door for being too loud when chopping vegetables on your counter for dinner. And they'll tell flight attendants something like, excuse me, but I, I saw that man using his cell phone during the safety demonstration. And they'll tell a cop something like, uh, you know, like license plate on that man's car is expired. So you get the gist. The busybody, somebody has so much time in their hands that they're getting buttoned into everybody else's business. They're the people that say, I wish the leadership in that organization would do something because I, you know, you know. Well, do you know what the leadership's doing? Oh, probably nothing. Well, you don't really know, do you? Well, I just, that's a busybody. There was some speculation, and I, and I want you to think through, through, through this a second, because I think it's kind of interesting, because I think some of us have idle mentality, and so when you have idle mentality, you stop having passion and purpose, and you become kind of um, sedative, like a person that really sees more importance of watching something on the couch than really getting involved in people's lives. And the speculation was there's probably three reasons why the people of this church were idle. The number one is there's, if you read chapter one or book one and book two, there's a lot about the return of Christ. So some commentators think that Jesus is coming back soon anyhow, nothing matters, so just whatever will be will be. Christian fatalism. God's in control. Who cares what I do anyhow? It doesn't matter. I might as well ring up $100,000 on credit because Jesus is coming back tomorrow kind of thing. Some people are kind of like that. God's going to come back any time, so why try? Or, you know, if God's sovereign and he's got everything under control, my efforts don't matter anyhow, so who cares? If he's saving everybody, why do I got to be a part of it? That's called Christian fatalism. Fatalism is whatever will be, will be. Caesarea. Then there was some speculation that because they're Christ, the body of Christ, they are the... They are the special elect, and since they're the special elect, they don't need to do anything anymore because they're Christ's little princess and princes, and he'll take care of them while the rest of the world can rot. I've heard some people say, well, you know, I'm made for heaven, not earth. There's even, the, there's even new teaching that says some people believe when you get really the second anointing of the Holy Spirit, you become a prince of God, and he you don't need to do anything anymore because he's just going to take care of you. He's going to take care of you. Because I'm a, his special little child. And I, he's going to treat me different than everybody else. Everybody else can work and get calluses, but not me. I'm his little child. And some commentators believe that what was going on is elect elitism. And then there's some other speculation, and this is a big one in our time, is that Christianity, if you, really, if you really know Christianity politically, it's the closest thing to it is communism. So they, it's called this communistic compassion. And the idea of communism basically teaches we all should be equal, not necessarily in opportunity, but in outcome. And since we're all to be equal, if somebody's making more than the other, then they need to share, so we're all equal. Some people even point to the very beginning of the church where they shared everything in common. But if you really looked at what was happening, Everybody came to Jerusalem for the, Pass for the Passover and then Pentecost, and thousands of people get saved, and they hang out in Jerusalem because they're learning from the apostles, so they need a place to stay. And then really Barnabas and other rich people, they donated their money because they wanted to, not because they're forced to. And so some of the speculation is because of 
communistic compassion, that if you're really a Christian, you want everybody to be equal. And Paul kind of argues against these things. Listen, listen to what he says in verse 7 through uh, 9. Paul says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. So they weren't just sitting around, they were working. So Paul comes into town, sets up the church, and he still worked because he knew he was going to be there a while. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So he didn't want to be a burden. Look at verse 9. It was not because we did not have that right. So as an apostle, he could have said, hey, I get my income from preaching. But because he's planning a church, he didn't want to be a burden. He knew he wasn't going to be there a long time. And so the reason he didn't do that is because, verse 9, we wanted to leave you an example for you to imitate. So the example is this. You want to live and be a productive member to do good work. Work. It's fascinating because um, one, one writer says, we don't know why they were idle. Like these are just speculations. So we can't assume this is what was going on. And then he says, but why in our culture are we so quick to assume people who are idle are just victims and it's not their fault? Maybe they were lazy, but we're not allowed to say that anymore. Maybe they were just lazy. So isn't it equally wrong to assume why people cannot work? And so the point is, he goes... He goes in this idea, and now he's going to talk about why work is so important. So the first thing we said is the way to get past fragility is to have confidence that God's going to take care of you. But the second thing is you are created to work. You're created to do what you can. You're given abilities. You're given talent. You're given passion because you're his agent's. On the earth. Let me read Genesis. I'll show you what I mean. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. This is before the curse. So work is not a curse. Actually, work was cursed. Work became hard after the curse, but work existed before the curse because we are made to be stewards or agents. God made a world for us. The world was made for us. A garden was made for Adam and Eve, and he made it for us so we could kind of participate in what he does. So we could sort of know what it's like to be like him, creating and beautifying and managing and flourishing. I was reading um, Blaise Pascal, who's a 17th century scientist, calls this the dignity, we have the dignity of causality, that because we've been given agency by God that we can represent him on earth, there's dignity to that. There's honor to that. God has allowed our lives to matter. He goes to write, to say whatever will be, will be, is a cop-out. Or worse yet, it is a negative philosophy of fatalism. 
Fatalism defined teaches that all events are predetermined and therefore inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it, so quit striving and quit caring. And the writer says there's nothing more depressing than that. C.S. Lewis even says, this is fascinating. God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly in the twinkling of an eye. Like he could get stuff done now, but for some reason he's letting us do it. And it ta- we're like all thumbs when we work. He allows us to neglect what he would have us to do or to fail. Perhaps we do not fully realize the problem, so to call it, of enabling finite free wills to coexist with omnipotence. This is how God makes something, indeed makes small g gods out of nothing. And so what he's saying is by allowing us to participate with him in creation, uh, stewardship, taking care of this world, we get an idea what it's like to be him a little bit. Like when you make something good, like so you have an idea, you have an idea, and then you start working it out, and it comes out in concrete fashion. There is a joy in that, a satisfaction in that. It's sort of how God feels after he finished creating the world, and he said, it's good. Aaron just made me a cross, and he's handing it to me, that nice cross. And you were smiling like, yes. And that was, yeah, he, he was a blessing to me. It is good. Some of you can write. Why aren't you writing? I'm not any good. How do you know write? Some of you are amazing at making things. Why don't you do it? Well, because I got a, there's a new Netflix thing on. Coming on. Some of you are tremendous at doing your work. Why don't you do it? Joe, when you would, man, when you'd make those log homes, and I'm not making you make those log homes, because I know it's hard work, but the, you're, you have skill, and you see it from the side of the road, it's like, wow, what's he doing over there? Remember when you had that log thing set up on 17 Mile? And I didn't know you back then, but I'd see this bald guy cutting wood over there. Like, what is that guy doing? And I want to drive by every day going, whoa, look what he's doing over there. We have the ability in a small way to be like God in the sense of creating. We're agents. So you could say it like this. There's beauty in agency. There's a joy to it. But there's two aspects to agency that we need to think through because I think fragile people and infragile people see it differently. There's the essence of an agent, what they are on the inside, and then there's existence. Let's first talk about essence. Essence is how you view your value, how you view yourself. And in this book, it's really fascinating. It talks about, oh, for most of Western culture, there would be what's called a, uh, the value of dignity. And listen to how it, this book describes it. There was the value of dignity. People had the value of dignity. So saying dignity people or dignity culture assumes people have dignity and worth, now listen to this, regardless of what others think of them. So they are not expected to react too strongly to minor slights. People are expected to have enough self-control to shrug off irritation, slights, and minor conflicts as they pursue their own projects. 
Dignity culture has a key perspective. People don't view disagreements, unintentional slights, or even direct insults as threats to their dignity that must always be met with a response. So the idea here is, in dignity culture, you know, if somebody says something sad to me, blows out my candle. In fact, it's just the opposite. It makes me stronger. I was reading, um, I got a book for Christmas on C.S. Lewis. I quote him a lot. He's an amazing writer. And when he was a kid, his thumb, his thumb wouldn't bend right there. It would be straight. It'd be straight. And so he couldn't, he couldn't catch balls. He couldn't grab a bat. He couldn't even shoot a gun. And all the kids, he went to a boarding school with boys, they all made fun of him all the time. And it was always competition in sports. And he's, he's like, man, I'm losing everything. But then he realized, I know how I can win. I'm not just going to, he, he said for a long time he was in despair and he realized, I know how I can win. I can get better with my mind. That's what God gave me so this guy can think. Instead of just crawling up in a ball because his thumbs didn't work, he actually became one of the greatest writers in my mind in the Christian, in the Christian circles. So what is the value of victimhood? We live in a day and age now that says we are, we are fragile, so we're victims. And so instead of dignity culture, we live in victim culture. What is victim culture? Here's what this book says. First, individuals and groups display high sensitivity to slights. Second, they have a tendency to handle conflicts through complaints to third parties. And third, they seek to cultivate an image of being victims who deserve assistance. People come to rely on external authorities to resolve their problems, and over time, their willingness or ability to use other forms of conflict management may atrophy. So I can remember when I was a kid, when we grew up, and my kid, we'd argue, my brothers and sisters, my parents would say, go outside and figure it out yourself. And a lot of times, my parents would say, go outside and come back during dinner. I don't want to know what you're doing, just figure it out. So we'd have to figure out a lot of conflict. But now they say kids need their parents to figure out every little conflict. Johnny won't let me play with the doll. Mommy. And then we get in there and we sit down and we say, now Johnny, let's talk through this. Instead of saying, you guys need to figure this out. My dad would say, you know, figure it out, but Chris never hit your sisters, ever. But they could hit me all they want and we figured it out. But now we need, <laughs> they say that counseling, like when you send kids to college, now they have to hire four or five times more counselors than they ever had before. Because kids can't handle conflict. Or people will, there's a conflict in the church, it's always now the leader's fault. And they got to do something. Do something at once. Well, that guy said something bad to me in the hallway, and you need to do something. I can't read minds. I can't patrol everything. But people want that. Sadly, could you imagine being the United uh, president of the United States these days? You're, you're to blame for everything. Obama was too, so don't, I'm not saying on either side, but president now needs to be not just the guy who increases our economy, but he has to be our savior. Didn't he used to just be a servant? Then on the other side of agency is this whole idea of of existence. Why am I here? And this is a big one. 
I think agency by its inference means if God sent me on earth to represent him, I have a purpose. So he sent me for a purpose. I should be about his business. But if I think agency has flipped itself on his head and now God is here for us, and you know what really our purpose is now? I would say you can hear it in language all over the place. We are here on this earth primarily, primarily to have fun. Primarily. And if somebody interrupts my fun, I'm fragile. Sometimes, what what people don't understand is when the fall happened, God said work is going to be hard. So assume that. And sometimes life is tough. And sometimes sadness, sadness is honestly sometimes the best thing in the world for you because when you're sad, you start finally thinking, why am I even here? If everything's pleasure all the time, you never ask that question. You weren't fragile because you didn't have fun. You are made for purpose. Figure it out. Figure it out. I'm not here to tell you what it is. God already told you in his word. He wants you to be faithful to what he's put you on this earth for. And just look at your talents, your gifts, your opportunities. Figure it out that way. But if all you're here for is pleasure, I want to um, I want to ask one small question. This is a really dangerous question. This will get me in trouble with a lot of people. But here's my question. What happened to us? What happened to us? Something happened to who we are and who our parents and grandparents used to be. There's a quali- I would say there's a qualifiable difference. And I'll read a story for you and you'll understand what I mean. And some of you will utterly hate this story. But... It will, it will highlight what I'm trying to say. The, uh, the story is titled, America's Worst Mom. America's Worst Mom. The lady's name is Lenore Skenazy. It's kind of a funny name. I was, actually, I was watching football with my son Joseph. We were watching the Oklahoma game, and the quarterback's name was Jalen Hurts. And Joe said, wouldn't it be cool if he had a kid and he named his kid It? It Hurts. Anyhow, let's keep reading. So Skenazy's kind of like that. So here's um, America's Worst Mom. Skenazy's journey to infamy began in 2008 when she permitted her nine-year-old son, Izzy, Izzy Skenazy, Izzy, this is a true story, to ride the New York City subway by himself. Nine-year-old Izzy. Izzy had been begging her for weeks to take him someplace he'd never been before and let him find his own way home. So, one sunny Sunday, Skenazy decided the time was right. She took him along on a trip to Bloomingdale's. Confident that Izzy would find his way home and could ask a stranger for help if needed, she armed him with a subway map, a metro card, a $20 bill, and several quarters in case he needed to make a call. 
and then sent him on his way. Forty-five minutes later, right on time, Izzy arrived home where his father was waiting for him and was ecstatic about his success and eager to do it again. New York City. Really? Mark, remember that I brought you to New York City? I had to keep you within five yards of me everywhere you went. He'd jump out of trees and tackle pedestrians. New York City, a nine-year-old boy on his own? You've got to be kidding me. He'll probably be kidnapped or a heroin addict will sell him drugs or something. You can't do that to the kid. The kid loved it. What happened to us? We don't do, we don't, we don't do that anymore. We keep our kids. Safe. Somehow we have lost this adventure, this grand adventure that God made me. He made me to explore, try things, experiment, and fail sometimes. Like how many times, you guys, how many times did Thomas Edison fail when he tried to find a light bulb filament? Does anybody know? 500 or 1,000? Man, that'd get tiring. Another one failed. Thank God the guy had perseverance. It's, uh, I remember when I was a little kid, I had, okay, so I had four sisters and a brother, and my brother Don was the most adventurous person I ever knew, and he often would get me out of the house, and I was always terrified because I didn't know what he'd do, and one time it was winter, and Lake Erie froze over the whole lake, and he said, Chris, let's see how far we can walk out. <laughs> Hopefully my mom is not listening to this sermon. We made it. We're alive. I still have four sisters and a brother. I don't think anybody fell in. Our dog might have. I don't remember. But dogs can handle it. They're fine. They go under the ice. You grab them back. You put them back on. But we would do that kind of stuff. And, I, and I'm not saying go be reckless. What I am saying is be reckless. Go ahead. Try it out. Reckless for Christ. But here's my question. My question is, are we fragile and are we really just on this earth to be safe? Or are we in fragile where we're here to look at our gifts, take a risk, make a difference? Make a difference. Because he ends here in this passage. It's kind of cool how he ends because he really doesn't want you to get the mentality of the idol. In fact, he, um, he says in verse 14, you know, if there's somebody who's idle and they just are not doing anything, really don't have anything to do with them, kind of get away from them, because you don't want that mentality to seek in. He said, do not regard him as an enemy, just warn him as a brother. But here's the key, is verse 13. All of this is for you, so you do not grow weary in doing good. You've been put on this earth to do good, to make a difference. And then verse 16 is beautiful. It's the benediction. And it says, now may the Lord of peace himself Give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And that word peace means shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean may everything be comfortable and easy and may you sit on the couch forever. Amen and amen. Peace means, shalom means, everything is functioning the way it should and proper. Everybody are using their gifts in the right ways. They're sharing in the right ways. They're, they're risking in the right ways, and it blesses everybody. Like this tree, the Bible says when the gospel comes into you and the Spirit starts making it alive, you turn into a tall oak 
a mighty oak tree. And in a mighty oak tree, you give shade and people can swing on the branches. You're not fragile. You're oak. You're an oak tree. That's what shalom is. Shalom is, Steve, you know what shalom is? And when you finally get that truck that you made, Steve designs trucks. And when that motor purrs, you turn it on, the diesel go, switch goes, and it's just idles, and you hear the idle. Oh, that's shalom. It's working. Everything's working good. Not, it's not shalom when that truck is just sitting in the garage and it's not being used. That's not shalom, but it's fake peace. I want to end with the story. I'll give you an example. So just to be honest with you, I needed this sermon more than anybody because I by nature am a scaredy cat, by nature, because I'm the youngest of six kids. Remember, I was a little kid. When I was a little kid, my dad would say I had chicken legs, so I was always kind of you know, a skinny little kid. Remember, when I was about six years old, we went to Virginia Beach, and we went to the big ocean, Atlantic Ocean. And I had one of those little red Bobby Brady swimsuits on, you know. And you go out to the beach, and it's scary, man. You know, my sister would tell me there's eels in there, probably electric eels. I looked that up one time in an encyclopedia, and there's no electric eels. I watched 10,000 Leagues Under the Sea with giant octopuses that would eat. And I'm like, man, if I go in there, I'll get wrapped around with tentacles. Don't get me. This was before Jaws. If I had watched Jaws, it would have been all over. <laughs> it would have been done. You know, and you, you know, so I'm walking really close, and I heard of undertoes. My mom would warn me about undertoes. Chris, I got an undertow. It just sounded like, you know, some old slimy guy would pull you deeper and deeper and deeper. So I touched the edge with my toe and I'd run back so I wouldn't get sucked by the undertow. My dad got sick of it. Chris, you need to go swim and enjoy the water. Dad, I don't want to. No, we're going to go, but let me show you first. So he went out. He would dive in the water and hit him and he'd just be smiling. My sisters would run out. My sisters were always brave. They'd do everything crazy, but not me. And my dad said, all right, you're coming. I said, no, I'm not coming. He grabbed my hand. I'm screaming, I'm not going out there. And he grabbed me and put me on his shoulders. One of the coolest things about your dad is when you're a little kid is how big shoulders are. They're kind of cool. I'd be on his shoulders. And you walk out deeper. He's getting up to his knees, and he got up to his waist, and it got up to his chest, and my feet could feel it. Got up to his neck. He's like, all right, you ready? I'll throw you in, but I'll hold on to your hand. No, no. So he threw me, and he still had my hand. Then he pulled me up, put me back on. He goes, did the octopus get you? No. So he goes, all right, now I'm going to let you go, but I'll be right there. So he, he threw me in, and I'm swimming around, and it was warmer. And he goes, touch the bottom. So I touched the bottom. It was sandy, warm sand. And he says, how do you like it? I said, it's not bad. He goes, there's no undertow. You'll be fine. So he went back in, and there I was. I ended up swimming with my sisters. I think what happens to us is we are like, you know, the little Bobby Brady guy. I can't do it. And then God goes out first and says, trust me. Will you trust me? That's step one. Will you trust me? That's all faith is. And then step two is he puts you on your shoulders and he gives you a chance to try. And then he says, you can do it. I'm still right there. Do you believe that? Or are you always 
scared. In my mind, you are not fragile. 